Two and a Half Admins, episode 69. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And you're back, Jim, although you don't sound 100% better. I am not 100% better, but believe me, if you heard me two or three days ago, you'd be like, man, Jim sounds great. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, making the effort. So before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is using FreeBSD's PKG audit to investigate known security issues. Yeah, so um, when you have a bunch of packages installed on your machine, if you run PKG audit, it will grab the latest VUXML file, which has a list of all known vulnerabilities, and will match that against the installed version of your packages and give you a list of, you know, these three packages you have installed have known vulnerabilities, you'll want to update them or whatever. And it can all be hooked up to have the right output for it to hook up into Nagios and your monitoring or whatever. So you can automatically start getting alerts when you have vulnerable software installed. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. The biggest news over the last week or so has been Log4Shell. This is a remote code execution exploit found in Log4J, which is a popular Java logging package. And you had to patch this, Alan. Turns out that uh, at Scale Engine, where we do video streaming, the video server software we use is Java-based. Actually, what I didn't realize at first was about half of our servers are running a slightly older version of the video software, which still uses Log4J version 1.2 point something. And then all the ones running the more up-to-date software were Log4J 2.13.3 as what we were at. And then the vulnerability comes out and it's like, yeah, Log4J, anything less than 2.15 is bad. So scramble to try to deal with that. And we put a mitigation in place, adding basically a command line flag to our Java invocation that disables doing any expansion in the the log text strings. And that kind of mitigated the issue. But then the site was eventually updated saying, you know, Log4J version one is also vulnerable to some other remote code execution attacks. (laughs) And you really want to upgrade everything to Log4J2. I was kind of hoping you were going to tell me that the uh, the older version was so antediluvian that the vulnerability hadn't even been introduced yet. Yes, so Log4J version 1 doesn't have the, f- the misfeature that causes the vulnerability, but it turns out it has other RCEs that you should update to get away from. I'm just going to go ahead and get the snobby comment out of the way. I did not have to worry about this vulnerability on any of my systems, and it's because I'm not daft enough to use a Java application to handle logging on my systems. Log4j is a library that almost every Java application uses to do its own logging. Right, but if you're not using Java applications... <laughs> yes, if you're not using Java applications, you're okay. It's just saying that it is usually the app that uses Log4j isn't a logging app. It's just the app uses Log4j to do its logs rather than write in their own, which is supposed to be the right thing to do. Right. When I first saw this vulnerability coming out, it was being billed largely as an Apache logging vulnerability. And uh, I looked a little closer and saw that it was, you know, Java thing. And I'm like, well, I'm not running any Tomcat servers or doing anything else with trying to force somebody to run a Java application on my server over the web. So eh, not going to be a problem for me. The, you know, some of the uh, exploit mechanisms that I saw people employing to take advantage of this were just hilarious in the stone axe simplicity, though. People were just pasting text strings into like chat boxes on web servers and, uh, you know, popping shells. Almost every Java project uses, so even like Minecraft server uses Log4J2. And so if you were to put this string in the chat of a Minecraft server, and if the Minecraft server logs that, then it'll blow up. Or if you put the string in as your username when you log in, and it logs that, and it can happen. Or in my case, the Java application has a basic web server in it 
for serving up the video playlists. And so if you just do a get for like slash dollar sign the gobbledygook, then it will try to expand that. And it turns out what it'll do is try to expand the variable and it supports the URI schemes. So you can actually put like an LDAP URL in it. And then when it goes to log it, it's going to expand that and go look up that string and try to interpolate it. You know, I feel like uh, apart from the uh, obvious and frankly kind of reductive, if hilarious lesson of, you know, maybe don't use Java that I alluded to earlier, maybe one of the bigger basic lessons here is that if you're writing a logging application, maybe it shouldn't be doing a ton of like clever data mangling that might involve executing things, you know, during the process. Maybe your logging application should just log the data and you can parse it later. Yeah. Like even if if this was, I don't know exactly what this was meant to do, but you know, my first conclusion was like, oh, it can take the user ID and use LDAP to look up the username or something. And like, why would I care about that? But the big problem seems to be that while looking up the information, it can actually end up running code that it gets from this remote server. So it's not just that you can make it have whatever text you want in the log file, Whereas, you know, if you could put a shebang line and some other stuff in the in the file, you could cause it to become a shell script that you could run or something. But this one is actually just going to load some more Java code from this random remote URL and start running it. The idea of logging, just like seeing a shebang and immediately spawning an execution environment is, is kind of hilarious, honestly. Yeah, well, this one, it wasn't even that. It's just like with typical logging, if you just log the shebang line and it's a fresh log file, then the log file might actually be executable now, like not uh, will be interpreted as the shell script at some point. And if you can cause the log file to get written to a different directory and like you could overwrite bin bash with your log file that is actually, you know, run bin sh and sudo this, that or the other thing or whatever. And then as soon as Jim tries to log into his machine, now he's fired off the, the vulnerability. Sure, but you know what you're describing sounds like a more reasonable kind of vulnerability to have in a logging application where just if you're allowed to log to some place that you shouldn't log to, then you know, yes, you could be able to write data in a place that's bad to have data written to. And all that sounds like a very reasonable mistake to make with logging. Whereas just executing the things that you're trying to log as you're logging them, that's where the hilarity comes, in, in my opinion. Well, yeah, it's just that if you cause the web server to log dollar sign open curly brace jndi colon a url that is going to go load that and if that has the right payload then it's going to be like oh look this nice java class let me run that for you and boom now i'm running whatever code i want on every java server just because whatever username i tried to log into this app with would get written to the log file and so my username having dollar sign curly brace some stuff in it, cause it to just explode. What I didn't realize was quite how popular Java is, because this has affected quite a lot of very large companies. In one sense, it's almost surprising that the scope hasn't been reported as wider than it is, because while it's very easy from a, I don't know, a general purpose computing perspective, if you're not already working with Java, it's easy like I have to just kind of discount it and be like, Java, yuck, I got away from that years ago and I want no part of it. But I don't think any of us are iPhone users, right? No, no. We all have cell phones. None of us are using like, you know, ancient crickets from Walmart. 
we're all running Android. So we run lots of Java all the time. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of things you wouldn't necessarily expect to use Java. Like the web interface on an HP printer? Yeah, <laughs> but not just that, is because, you know, for all of the 2000s and probably even most of the 2010s, that was the language people learned when they went to university. And so when they got into industry, that's what they built things in. And so like almost all stuff to do with processing credit cards is Java oh. because it means you can write the app once and it, it runs on, it doesn't matter if they're using Linux, Solaris or Windows or whatever, it just works, right? Write once, exploit anywhere. Yeah. And so like I know I did a bunch of work to keep Java stuff working so that all a bunch of payment card industry stuff would run on FreeBSD. And then the same thing happens with this video server. The reason why they write it in Java is it means they can support Windows, Linux, and BSD with the same code instead of having to write three different versions of it. I got to say, in my experience, you're dead on with the comment about, uh, you know, early 2000s university. I got a good chunk of a computer science degree that I'd never finished in the early 2000s. And uh, I, the whole reason that I went to get the degree to begin with was to attempt to get some, you know, lower level programming experience. And what I had, my goal was, you know, to get into low level operating system stuff. And I thought, well, I'm going to pursue, you know, a real no kidding four year computer science degree. You know, I'll get lots of chances to do cool things and, you know, C, C++, you know, whatever. And it... God, it, you, you practically needed a tow truck and a spear gun to get anything other than Java in any course during the entire four-year program. Matter of fact, the 1C programming course that I took technically wasn't even in the computer science department. This also illustrates an old point about how a lot of critical infrastructure is run on software that virtually no one is working on or being paid for. Yeah, it definitely smacks of the Heartbleed thing and OpenSSL in that, you know, Log4J is used in all of these things and there's a bunch of volunteers working on it, but there's no real foundation. Like it's, it's part of the Apache Foundation, which I think is part of what led people to this idea that it was mostly related to Apache, which, you know, the fact that Apache doesn't actually mean the web server most times when people refer to it now is very confusing. Uh, to an old timer like me or Jim. Hey, <laughs> well, you're an older timer than me. Don't complain at me. <laughs> but yeah, it's just that, you know, it turns out this critical bit of infrastructure is mostly just people's spare time or whatever. And it has had this kind of same problem that OpenSSL had of somebody showed up with this feature they wanted and they wanted to upstream it. And upstream was like, well, we don't want to say no for no reason. And they accepted this feature that probably should have never been on by default and maybe should have never been part of Log4J in the first place. Absolutely should never have been on by default. You know, there, there's a certain class of infrastructure that, and, and we alluded to this earlier, but there's a certain class of infrastructure that should not be fancy. You know, when you say a logging application, you should know immediately what that does. You know, it accepts data and it dumps it reliably to disk, either locally or remotely that's its job. That should pretty much be the beginning and the end. When you start saying, well, you know, I also want it, want it to dance the mariachi and sing happy birthday to me every third Sunday. Well, it's, now you, you not only introduce the possibility of a whole new class of problems, you introduce a whole new class of potential problems that nobody is expecting from the thing that just writes freaking logs. Yeah, it should like throw a timestamp and maybe a host name or whatever on the front of the line and put the line there. And, you know, it happens to deal with log rotation for you and a couple things like that. But outside of that, yeah, why is it doing anything fancy? 
Do I need to sanitize the data that I'm dumping to my log? No, 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 that's not something you're supposed to have to sanitize. But it was interesting to see the, the breadth of the impact. The Canadian Tax Authority shut down their website uh, because it turns out the back end of that is Java. And the, uh, the inner city bus service here that goes between cities had to shut down their website and their payment system until they could mitigate the, the log4j vulnerabilities. I was a little too slow to add infinity dollars to my bus card. <laughs> Somebody else added the square root of negative $1 to their bus card first and it was too late. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. There were quite a few announcements at AWS reInvent a couple of weeks ago, but one that stood out to me that you two might want to have your say on, and that is that OpenZFS is going to be available on AWS. Well, I'm pretty sure you think that we might want to have our say on it because I'm pretty sure you heard about it from me first. I started crowing about that immediately. Um, it probably won't surprise anybody to hear that I've got one of those Google News alerts on uh, ZFS. Unfortunately, it is wildly useless. And as a result, I get daily reminders about uh, zinc fluoride sulfate and uh, some, I think, Belgian fashion company or something. And almost never anything about file systems. But on a lark, I was checking that folder and uh, the, the day that that news came out and, you know, holy crap, here's something about OpenZFS and whoa, ZFS at AWS. All right, let's make with the clicking. Yeah. So this is in Amazon's FSX service, which is basically a fancy NFS service. So it allows you to have your applications that are running in AWS, like in an EC2 instance or or otherwise, be able to connect over NFS to something on Amazon that's that's using ZFS. Uh, they also have NetApp, Windows Server, and something else. I think that there's three or four different flavors of this. But in particular, ZFS is the one they market as having the best latency and performance. Great. So this means I can send my ZFS snapshots to AWS now then, right? No, you can only <laughs> access it over NFS. Ah, That was the same thought that I had, Joe. I was like, wow, do I finally have a good answer for all these legions of people that say, I'm totally on board this OpenZFS train, Jim, but uh, how do I back it up to Amazon S3? And I was like, oh, finally, I can, you know, not that I still personally would really want to do it myself that that much, but uh, I can just replicate off to S3 and that'll be great. And no, you can't. I honestly have a little difficulty imagining who this is the killer app for. Like, you know, who's the big customer for this? Because obviously at first I got 
incredibly excited, you know, bouncing up and down in my seat at the idea of, you know, yay, OpenCFS at AWS. I realized that, you know, underneath it's going to be pointing to the same block storage that Amazon always uses. So already you've kind of nerfed a lot of the things that make OpenZFS great and, you know, eyes like such as Alan's and myself. Because it's not actual hardware beneath the OpenZFS layer there at AWS, you're not necessarily getting as much in the way of additional safety guarantees as you do out of layering ZFS atop raw disks. You're still relying on Amazon's actual integrity to a large extent, you know, for the, the block storage that under that underlies it. But, you know, you, you are adding something there. And if you added the capability to replicate back and forth to it and, you know, manage it in a lot of the ways that OpenZFS makes possible, manipulating record size and, uh, you know, creating, uh, you know, ZVols, all these kinds of things that we're all very familiar with doing, that struck me as potentially very interesting. I thought, you know, naively when I first heard about it, oh, maybe I can even use this to, you know, finally have relatively inexpensive and at a host that everybody is familiar with, true ZFS underlying like actual web services. So, you know, I could say, oh, hey, I can do my little server in a bottle thing and have like, you know, a MySQL database and uh, an Apache or Nginx web server and like a WordPress stack all sitting on top of ZFS. Everything's, you know, virtual. I can back up out of that to my machine. So rather than backing up to the cloud, backing up, you know, my cloud stuff, you know, to local infrastructure, all of that sounded really appealing. And I can do absolutely none of that. With this particular thing, like obviously you can spin up a, an EC2 instance and use ZFS as the file system on an EBS volume and do whatever you want. But that's not the same thing. This is more for if you're using Amazon's FSX, uh, either from instances in Amazon or from your own network via the Amazon Virtual Cloud Connect thing. Uh, so you can even connect this to your office. And then it's just a giant NFS server in the sky that you can throw stuff on. But what makes it interesting from a general user's point of view is that, you know, compared to using FSX for Windows File Server or FSX for Luster for Linux or ONTAP, is that the latency is about half as much as the other three types. And the throughput, instead of most of the other ones are two to three gigabytes a second. And for ZFS, they advertise four to 12 gigabytes per second. And then Instead of hundreds of thousands of IOPS, they guarantee or offer up to a million IOPS on ZFS. But that's only accessing it over NFS, V3 or V4. So basically, it's a neat testimonial for OpenZFS, you know, Amazon managing to leverage OpenZFS to greatly improve performance in a service that they offer, but it's not really offering ZFS to anybody else. It's just, oh, yay, Amazon used ZFS to make their crap better, but it's still their stuff you access their way. Yeah, uh, you do have a little bit of control. Like you, you use their API to actually create data sets and you can control, I think, the compression and the record size and a couple of basic things. If someday they add replication, that would really make it a lot more useful than what they have right now. But the big thing that is, is they offer, they use the Z standard compression that I added to OpenZFS last year. And with that, they, that's how they advertise these crazy speeds in some of it as well, is that, you know, the little asterisks, you only get that speed if you're reading compressed data and it can pull it off disk at one speed, uncompress it and get a higher actual throughput. And as usual, for purposes of, you know, marketing numbers, compression always equals 50%. Yeah. 
So what's interesting here is single availability zone ZFS file system backed by SSD. They want nine cents per gigabyte month. I think that's three times as expensive as S3. It's cheaper than some of the EBS types, but I think there are some EBS types that are cheaper. And then you have to provision your throughputs and your IOPS uh, as well. So it's not necessarily going to be cheap. Like their typical one of five terabytes of storage, you're looking at $461 a month. And that's before you add guaranteed throughput and IOPS. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. So Pear writes to us, what is the best web server for static sites with minimal memory use? And what is the best web server for static sites with high usage? My answer to both is just Nginx because it's what I have the most experience with and know that it can work very well with not a lot of memory usage and that it works extremely well with high amounts of traffic. And, you know, it means if you set it up for one, it's pretty much good to go for the other. How minimal do you care about the size of the web server if you have a static site that's not busy? Yeah. Does the difference between it uses 40 megabytes versus 20 megabytes of memory or something make a difference on a site that's not busy? And then on a big site, you should have enough memory to run whatever web server it is you're going to run. But in both cases, Nginx is very good at static and it's very good at integrating with different operating systems to use those features, whether that's open file handle caching or send file and RSS and lots of other features to offload work out of the web server. Like it can use the kernel TLS in, in BSD and I think Linux to do the HTTPS and have all the work done by the operating system and get out of the web server and get huge throughputs. If you're really serious about the minimal memory use thing, and it's not just, you know, trying to min-max something that's going to run on a VPS somewhere, but, you know, maybe you're trying to build some, you know, embedded device with extremely limited RAM, you could experiment with uh, light HTTPD, which is just, you know, L-I-G-H-T-T-P-D. Uh, we used to use that for static servers back in the day, you know, when the alternative was Apache or possibly Nginx. It certainly performs extremely well, and it is extremely lightweight. Whether it's going to be enough to make a difference versus Nginx is difficult to say for certain. If this is like, you know, some specialty thing and maybe HTTPS is not a concern at all, you could also consider Varnish. That's going to be the lightest weight in terms of memory and CPU and everything else that you can possibly get. 
But honestly, when you're talking about purely static stuff, if you're even at like $5 a month, you know, Linode VPS scale, there's just not enough difference between them to matter. You're not really going to see much of a difference between plain vanilla Apache with no PHP plugins or anything else that's just serving static or Nginx or Lighty or what have you, because it's just not a difficult task. They've all been doing that for a very long time and they're all very good at it. Yeah. Varnish wouldn't work in this case because it would need a real web server behind it. Like Varnish doesn't actually contain the code to read a file off disk is just a cache. But I think all of those would be fine. Like if you wanted to go super minimal because you were just being paranoid or something, the OpenBSD HTTP server is super lightweight. But like Jim was saying, I think even in like a VPS that only has 256 megs of RAM or something, all of them are going to shrink down small enough to not be a problem in that case. And I don't know that it's worth using something exotic versus something like Nginx where you're going to be able to find documentation and instructions and examples super easy. Okay, Zach says, I'm working on integrating RHEL at the Windows-only MSP where I work. I already use a Debian system for my work computer, and I've cut all Windows out of my personal life. I've hesitated to get my A-plus CompTIA certification because I don't care for the Windows parts and have no interest in a career with any Microsoft products. Do you think RHEL certification could be useful for changing careers, or should I start with a different path? Could you please advise me on which certifications would be most desirable and needed with today's and tomorrow's Linux infrastructure? Well, I, I think the more important question is whether any certification is the key part of migrating your career from Windows-specific to Linux-specific. And I'm not so certain that it is. Of the Linux certificates that are out there, I would say that the RHEL certification is probably more widely useful than any of the others. You could get, you know, an LPI that is supposedly distro agnostic, although I believe LPI mostly depends on Debian knowledge, but it's not going to be recognized as many places as a RHEL cert is. Even if you want to work in a non-RHEL shop, the odds that they have some idea what a RHEL cert is and care about it are, in my experience, kind of higher than for any other certificate. But the other thing is just, you know, is a certification really the big key? And I would argue, no, it absolutely is not. The The key, if you want to be a professional Linux sysadmin, is to know your shit about Linux and be able to demonstrate that in an interview, in practical tests, you know, what have you. Certs are sometimes a helpful way to get considered for that interview, but you're going to bomb the interview. You're going to bomb the job if you don't know what you're doing. And my experience has been if you do know what you're doing, you can usually get the interview. Um, I personally have absolutely no Linux BSD or any other technical certs to my name. And uh, I dropped out of college, do not have an undergrad degree. And I only went to college and did the dropping out well after I had an established IT career. I'm not saying that you should not get certs or you should not get a degree. They are helpful. I just think it's a mistake to think that they're the be-all, end-all of getting a Linux career. Yeah, there are two things there. One, I would say look at the job description for the jobs that you want and see if they list specific ones they're looking for. Because generally, the thing the certification is useful for is if they have a non-technical person or a computer program doing the screening of the resume saying, if you don't have these keywords, we're not considering you kind of thing. Because like Jim was saying, once you're to the interview stage, they're past caring what certifications you have. It's can you answer the questions and, and talk intelligently about the subjects they want to talk about. And so sometimes it's having the certification is about getting through the gatekeeping phase 
before the interview. Uh, and if you make it to the interview, then the certifications probably don't matter at that point and beyond. And like Jim, I went to what is a college in Canada, which is somewhat equivalent to a community college in the US, but technically I have a diploma, not a degree, and I never went to a real university at all. And I'm doing plenty fine. Okay, Tom says, recently I replaced my home ISP router with PFSense and a full TP-Link Armada set of switches and access points. My home network has never been more stable. My home is a bit limited as the fiber comes into a small meter room and there are only two ways out, a cable and an ethernet over power. In the meter room is an 8-port switch connected to the PFSense router, which is a Chinese box Intel i3 with six interfaces. So far, I've used VLANs only, so everything goes over the same interface. I know PFSense is not a switch, but would it make any sense to put things like the IPTV, guests, and the IoT network on a separate interface? Would I see any benefits to this, even though it still goes over the two-switch trunked lines? It probably depends a bit, like... If the modem is going into one port on the PFSense and then you have two different ports on the PFSense going to your switch, one on one VLAN and one on another, you could get maybe a bit more bandwidth, but in the end you can only have the speed of your internet going out and it's not going to be faster than the speed of your LAN, so it probably wouldn't make uh, much of a difference. If you've only got two cables going out, then I, I don't think it makes sense to try to go with physical interfaces on PFSense because ultimately you can't fit enough wires for all the interfaces, you know, and you're in and out. So it's all going to have to get collapsed back down to something virtual at some point anyway. The big thing that I would want to point out is, as always with VLANs, just defining VLANs, but then having any device allowed to set its own VLAN tagging doesn't actually get you any security benefits. If you want security benefits from VLAN tagging, once you get out of that meter room, you know, whatever switch everything is plugged into, you need to have the the VLAN tagging configured by the switch, not individually at people's machines. If somebody's computer can say, I'm on VLAN 8, then there's absolutely no security in you putting a service on VLAN 8 rather than the default VLAN, because anybody can get at it. But if the only way to get to VLAN 8 is via the port on the switch that adds that tagging, now you've got the same kind of security that you would have with multiple physical interfaces to begin with. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.